Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, y'all. It's Ashley here. Today, we've got something a little different and very special. Last week, Katie and I had the incredible opportunity to talk with one of our favorite authors, Sue Monk Kidd, about her newest work, The Book of Longings, The Divine Feminine, spiritual practices and community beyond the church, and so much more. I don't want to spoil anything, so be sure to listen all the way to the end. And if you haven't been following along, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our episode from September 2020 called Sue Monk Kid and the Book of Longings, where we do a deeper dive into her books and what they've meant to us. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Sue Monk Kid, to the Kindreds Podcast. We're so glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you. We're excited to talk with you, too. And before we get started, we wanted to just say thank you because last summer you reached out uh, to ask if you could share our podcast episode that we did on the Book of Longings on your Instagram account. And that meant so much to us, uh, not just sharing the podcast, but for for your words as well. And it was a bright spot in a really tough year and during a tough (laughs) time for us. So we wanted to just say thank you for doing that. Well, you're very welcome. And it was very easy to do. I, I loved it. Yeah. I, lo- I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, we're so excited to talk about the Book of Longings, which releases in paperback this month. And if you're listening and you haven't read the book yet, the Book of Longings is about an ancient woman named Anna who has words and stories in her heart that she longs to share with the world. And this is a story of her discovering her own power and truth. And she also happens to be married to Jesus, too. Yeah, just sidebar. You know, <laughs> <a> side note. <laughs> yeah. So, Sue, if it's okay with you, we'll start by talking about the Book of Longings. And hopefully, as time allows, we can expand our conversation from there. Sure. In our most recent episode that uh, Katie and I recorded in February, we talked about how our understandings of Jesus have evolved over the years. And I'll give you a little background. When we were young, and specifically when we were actively participating in evangelical church culture, the emphasis was always on what Jesus meant. He was the Savior, our conduit to heaven, but very little attention was paid to who Jesus was was as a person. And it's a shame because there's a lot we lose when we divorce Jesus from his human body, when we turn him into a concept as opposed to a person who actually lived. And we miss opportunities to learn about our interconnectedness as humans throughout time, what it means to care about our physical bodies, even deepening our understanding of how of our own physical connection to a place in time and our human experience of the land we live on. And that leads us to the Book of Longings because something that Katie and I both loved about it was how concretely Jesus was depicted in a place in time as a unique person. And our question for you is, How has your understanding of Jesus evolved over time, and how did that show up in the Book of Longings? Well, it has evolved in uh, very big ways, actually. I started where you started, which is in the Southern Baptist, well, I don't know if you were Southern Baptist, but in an evangelical church, a small town in Georgia in the 1950s and 60s as I came of age. And while on one hand I was going to charm school, in my adolescence, 
sent to charm school, I must say, as all the girls my age were. So you can see how wonderfully we were being tamed. I was also going to church. It felt like 10 times a week. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And yes, it was on, as you put it, on what Jesus did. He was, the emphasis was on the word and the emphasis was on getting saved and on saving other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was not on the, um, the personhood of Jesus or even on really the relationship with Jesus so much. So I had a very, I've had a strong kind of um, evolving of my spirituality in my twenties and early thirties, I discovered the inner life and I discovered that Jesus could be what we projected on Jesus. And one thing I learned as I studied the historical Jesus is that he is kind of what um, people want to, well, that whatever their predilections or worldview or need seems to be, Jesus could be a healer. Jesus could be um, a miracle worker, you know, a savior, a feminist. I mean, Jesus mm-hmm. could be all these things mm-hmm. depending on where we came from. And so I began to understand that we relate to Jesus in so many different ways. And then as things moved along in my 40s, I began to understand that um, there was the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus. And I became interested in the humanity in that gap between where Jesus was a person and Jesus became the Christ. So that's really two different things in my mind. There's the there's Jesus, the historical figure who was actually born and lived and died and did things that I tried to portray in the novel. And then there is this um, Christ figure that is very archetypal, that he embodies and incarnates in amazing ways. So I guess I would just say that there, there has been an evolution and some of it has been brilliantly helpful to me in helping me relate in better ways to the divine. I love that. And I think the Christ can either be a way to divide us or a way to connect us. And I think in the traditions Mm -hmm. that we grew up in, it felt like it was a very divided, divisive way of thinking about the Christ, meaning you're in or you're out versus the Christ is in all Mm -hmm. things. Yes. And, um, you know, Jesus' humanity is so significant that we've lost, I mean, we've kind of lost touch with it because his, his deity has become so elevated in the church that we forget he really did things like eat, you know, and, and um, talk to people other than what is said in the scripture. It's as if some people think that's all he said. Mm. Um, And yet there is this whole other life. And one of the things, it was not the premier thing in my mind as I wrote the novel, but it was certainly important to me because this story is really not Jesus' story. As you know, it's Anna's story. Right. But I was interested in saying that if Jesus could, as a human being, could do these things and have these, um, have this amazing heart and compassion and vision for the world, for inclusion and um, relationship, and community and all of the things, love. I mean, that was his highest value, it seemed to me. Then surely we as human beings can do that. Did we forget? He's not that different as a human 
So that was in my mind as well, was trying to help us understand that we've lost touch with our own ability to be embodied with the divine as he was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One last comment about Jesus, and then we're going to talk about Anna. But I I think what I found so compelling was how really his response and love came out of his own dealing with being marginalized and oppressed and his, Mm -hmm. his conscious decision not to perpetuate systems of oppression in the way that he interacted with others. And that, that was so empowering to read that it wasn't just, Mm -hmm. he was a God and therefore he had no struggle in interacting with humans. No, it was a very conscious decision that I will not do to others Mm -hmm. what has been done to me. And I just loved that. Um, Well, that made sense to me actually, that um, as a human being, he probably struggled with all kinds of ostracism. And I mean, where did this luminous vision of his come from for a world? I think it came from his heart and from his experience and from his own, you know, his own treatment, Mm -hmm. how he was treated. Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about Anna because this is what this book is about. Yes. Yes. So one thing that you might not know, I don't think we talked about it on the episode, is both Ashley and I work in faith-based advocacy for reproductive freedom. And we talk about how so few of our sacred texts touch on the real realities of reproductive life. And specifically Mm -hmm. that throughout history, women have always found ways to control their fertility. They just didn't get to write the stories down. So... We love that you talked about that, and we would love for you to (laughs) describe to our listeners the reproductive journey that Anna has in the story. Well, I love that question. It's one I rarely get. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wanted Anna to choose whether she wanted to be a mother or not, and so I had to do a lot of research, and I discovered that, amazingly, women have always had means, not fail-safe, like we have today, but they've always had means and ways of, of trying to do this. And um, they, they relied on all kinds of um, herbs and combinations of things and their role in life at this in first century and continuing on through the eons was to produce babies. You know, that Mm -hmm. was their role. So they were to be mothers and they were, they were valued according to their motherhood and really according to what gender of baby they could produce. So I wanted um, Anna to be able to have access to these um, ways. And so I found tons of them. I mean, lots of ways that women did this and midwives would provide these. And it was sort of done under the table a little bit. And I, I'm pretty sure that their husbands didn't know a lot about this at the time, because in Judaism, then, I mean, go forth and multiply, you know, this was the Mm -hmm. mandate was to have children and multiply. So Anna, of course, um, takes these and she, she confesses to Jesus that she's doing this. I loved that. Yeah. She thought she had hidden it from him for a year. And then of course, everybody's starting to ask where the babies, where the babies. And she finally tells him what she's doing and that she doesn't know that she doesn't want children, which is a radical idea. And I had to deal with how he would respond to that. You know, is he going, how's he going to respond? And I decided that 
according to how I understood the figure of Jesus as a human, he would have said, I, you know, that's your choice. That's your choice to make. And so he kind of gave his blessing to what she was doing. At least um, I think he was disappointed, but he gave his blessing in a way. And then, of course, um, they aren't fail safe. And then she did become pregnant. And she has a journey with learning to to come to terms with her pregnancy and love this child. And, you know, I'm going to give away things if I continue on with what happens with all of this. Mm-hmm. But if someone hasn't read it, however, um, I think the blessing of her having a choice was an important thing. I think the other important theme for me was what do you want to mother? And her aunt, Yaltha, who was her companion and her mentor and her spiritual midwife and many other things, um, said to her, I know you're meant to be a mother. I just don't know what it is you're meant to mother. Yes. And she decided in the end, it was her, her great work, Mm -hmm. which is to write the narratives of women in a time when women's stories were not told. So I want to I want to follow up with this question because this is such a powerful mm-hmm. set of scenes in the book and so there is a reproductive loss I'll just say that and she Anna is wondering you know should I become pregnant again and then she goes on to have a dream that's very much like your dream in the dance of the distant daughter in which about identical identical. (laughs) I know I reread the dance of the distant daughter not long ago and I said wait a second I need to go back and and find this scene (laughs) so so in the dream she gives birth to herself the baby is her and Aunt Yaltha says why look you are the mother and the baby both um Mm -hmm. so this question of of what it means to birth ourselves is really important and I want to ask it this way in in a nuance because both Ashley and I are both mothers of young children who feel Mm -hmm. led to embrace the largeness within ourselves. So it's this, we've made the decision to mother and we're making the decision to embrace the largeness. So what does it mean to birth children or to parent with the knowing that our heart's deepest longing is actually to birth something else? Yeah, I've been there. Um. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's very messy and it's very conflicted and it's very hard. I have a painting um, of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in which she is sitting. It's, I, the reason I bought it is because um, she's holding a book in one hand and she's got Jesus on the other hand uh, as a baby, um, sort of a toddler on her hip. And she's trying very hard to read this book. But he's pulling at her when he's got a hand up pulling at her. And she's and I can just picture her doing this book or baby. And um, I felt that all the time. And I think this is a conflict within women. And I don't think we should have to choose this between Mm -hmm. them like Anna did. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I would think there would be a way to embrace both. And until we have a more egalitarian culture, I'm not sure that it's going to be easy. But, you know, I'm the mom of two children or, well, I'm the grandmother now of their children. So they're not children. Um, So I think that um, that conflict is one you have to stay in the midst of. And I can only say that um, they grow up. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> this is reassuring. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, I loved mothering my children and actually they always came first before my other pursuits because I finally realized that they would grow up and go away, but I would always have this other possibility. And I mm. was often conflicted and I would try to write as much as I possibly could. Um, I told my daughter um, that she would probably end up on the therapist couch because of all the times I forgot to pick her up at school because I was always, you know, writing and looking at the clock and going, Oh no, I've forgotten again. And she somehow has not been damaged by that. But I think it's like that, you know, you write hip deep in motherhood Mm, or you pursue things in the midst of it. And it does somehow bring a, a kind of energy and texture to everything to write in the midst of, or to find ways to do it. Now, you know, you, you work around it and know that if you stay in the tension of it, somehow it works out. Mm. I wish I had a real good answer, but that's the only one I got. I, I found that comforting. And I wrote my first book when too. my daughter was a baby. And that's when I started waking up at 430 in the morning to get it done. And then I yeah. wrote my second one during the pandemic in an hour well, a day, because that's the only way to do it. Yeah, I, I used to say I wrote books between grape juice spills and things like yes. that. You know what I mean? And yes. somehow I can, I, it taught me, it really does kind of train you to um, focus your, I can focus my mind in ways that are baffling to my husband. Things can be going on around me, but I can be mm. completely focused and not even know it's happening until somebody pulls on my shoulder, like the baby Jesus did his mom, you know? So I think it, we, we find a way and an ability to do it. We find a way. (laughs) And I wonder in the midst of that, when do we have time to care for our spiritual lives, (laughs) you know? And I would love to shift to talking about our spiritual practices, if that's okay. Because a big theme that Katie and I return to on the podcast all the time, and we get questions from our listeners all the time, is what our faith looks like in practice outside of church. And you know, Katie mentioned earlier that our our work in reproductive rights, and I don't think it's a coincidence that either of us ended up called to work that primarily centers women before we even fully understood the impact that that would have on our faith. Mm-hmm. And part of my own faith journey that I'm still working through is coming out of a patriarchal religion, realizing that it's not a place where I could be whole, either in concept or in practice. My female divinity is not recognized. My bodily autonomy is not affirmed. The spiritual teachings and contributions of women throughout time are ignored. And there's this whole world of the feminine divine that was just kept from us. And Katie and I find ourselves trying to construct a new way of connecting with ourselves and with God. And your books have helped open this up for us. And helped us return to and remember the things from our ancient traditions that we were taught to forget. And so I guess we're both curious, what shape does your spiritual practice take these days? And maybe do you have any advice for us or for our listeners about how to construct a spiritual practice Mm -hmm. outside of what's laid out by patriarchal religion? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) 
Just a small question. This is why we just started a, Kindreds, basically. Yeah. <laughs> just a small question there. How much? How many weeks do we have? Right. It's kind of how I feel. Um, well, you know, interestingly, I just wrote a lecture that I will be giving next. I think it's on the thirty, the twenty eighth on a Sunday, the twenty eighth of March, for a virtual event. Which is what is your what is your evolution in theologically and spiritually? And I took this on because I wanted to understand it and be able to articulate it myself. And I spent a lot of time reflecting on this. And it is very different today than it was when I was in my teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Okay, I'm in my 70s. I'm 72 now. And it is very different. Um, So I think it's hard to, I think you have to let the little acorn in you turn into an oak tree in its own form and way. And it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. However, when I was waking up and deconstructing my own internalized patriarchal fate and waking up to feminist spirituality and theology and the sacred feminine and all of that, my lifeline was other women. Mm-hmm. And they were my community. They were my church. Um, they spoke me into being. They they midwifed me. And it was a very small group because there were very few of us. I mean, this was in the 80, 1980s. And um, I think it began that way. I left the church. I am not an active member of a, of a church. I don't judge the women who are awake and alive and, and um, have deconstructed their faith, who decide to remain and change Mm -hmm. that. I think some of us have to leave because we can't support that, which um, oppresses us. Mm -hmm. And then some are maybe feel called to stay within and and try to change it from within. I think all of this is good, but I think you have to find new models, things that are inborn in women as groups or even individually. What are the new forms of expressing our spirituality that includes the sacred feminine and all of these things that we care about? And then I would say personally, my writing is my spirituality. It's my prayer. People say, how do you pray? I write. Mm And that is my prayer because I understand my writing as mostly as a conversation I'm having with the deepest part of myself, with what I would call my soul. So I'm having that conversation. And, you know, a moment ago, um, Katie, you were referring to the dream you would be ahead of birthing myself that I wrote about in the dance of the dissident daughter. And there are many women having this dream. They write to me and tell me, I dreamed that dream. Wow. The same dream. It's some kind of archetypal underpinning to that, that I don't understand particularly, but I believe that it's um, happening for women everywhere. But is that not being born again? What if we interpreted it that way? that to be born again is to birth yourself again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens, I think, in a personal and even collective or or 
small communities of women and men um, who can together midwife and birth themselves into larger and larger and larger ways of being theological and spiritual because, you know, I think our evolution is about expansion. Yes. It's about largeness and not being, not embracing our smallness, but embracing our largeness and allowing the oak tree to happen. In other words. So, you know, we pray in our own way and we let our spirituality grow. And I discovered that mine grew through the embodiment of the divine within matter, within nature, you know, within the earth. I mean, what if the earth now, what if the second coming is really finding the divine within the earth, the consciousness of that? What if it's like the, um, the wafer, that we hold up over the chalice. I mean, there's so many ways to begin to interpret that our expanding of our spirituality and we can do this individually, but we do need one another too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would just say, follow your conversation with yourself and your heart and your soul and feed it and don't be afraid. I'm never going to think about born again the same way. I know. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) Yes. And I'm so glad you mentioned expansion. That is something Katie and I return to over and over is this idea of a more expansive theology, a more expansive understanding of ourselves, of the divine, trying to liberate ourselves from the limitations that we put on ourselves and our communities and I think I – I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, Katie, but we, we both tend to think about our spirituality in a context of liberation, personal and collective liberation. And I'd like to ask a question about being from the South because Katie and I are both from the South and specifically we're white women in the South. And so when we talk about liberation – This has a specific meaning when you consider the legacy of racialized violence and oppression in the place where we're from. And you're also from the South, and you've written explicitly about race in your book, The Invention of Wings. And I wonder how does, if it does, how does being from the South shape your spirituality and in particular your response to this communal call to working for our collective liberation? I should say that first, that um, that is another way of being spiritual is what you are doing with your own activism. Mm. You know, I think activism with social justice and with racial equality and all, all the all the isms that we need to be aware of and fighting and resisting. This is also a prayer. Mm. And this is also a way of embodying the human Jesus. And I think it's a way of saying that compassion matters. And if you can work for compassion and you can be compassionate, I think that is the highest value that there is. And that is God to me. Mm. So um, I, I wanted to say that first, but being from the South, well, you know, I did go to charm school. What can I say? That was part of it. And mm-hmm. the I and, and I think it matters what, era you were born into in the South too. Mm -hmm. I grew up in pre-feminist 
pre-integration, um, pre-civil rights South. And so I think the those forms of violence and racial injustice were very solidified. And so there has to be a kind of breaking out of that that happens that is very similar to breaking some of the limitations of the patriarchal church. I mean, you have to kind of wake up mm-hmm. and it sometimes is um, hard. It wasn't particularly hard for me. I seemed to come into the world. My mother said as a rebel and I questioned everything, even sitting in church, you know, I would question what was going on when I was like eight years old. Why is he saying that? That doesn't seem fair. Mm-hmm. I think that writing about race now is something as a white woman from the South, I do very cautiously because I don't want to, um, I don't want anyone to feel like I'm trying to co-opt their story. Mm-hmm. But I do remember what James Baldwin said, the, the great African-American novelist, that race is all of our history. You know, I have a history with it and I wanted to tell that history with it. So white people also are involved and need to be involved in this resistance and breaking down these barriers and these, the racial injustice. And I wanted to do my part to do it because of what I experienced in in my own racial history growing up in us. I mean, I was the first, first graduating high school class that was integrated was mine Mm -hmm. in my little town in Georgia. And it was, it made a huge impact. And these, these three students were very brave and were incredible. And um, I never forgot them. I wanted to witness some of that. So I think we all have a history with this. It's not just Southern. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's a national wound. Yes. It's particularly deep in the South. And it's not over. And we're seeing a resurgence right now of this white supremacy, um, what shall we call it, hatred, um, consciousness, violence. Oh, we've been playing with uh, white, white Christian, Christian nationalism, nationalism a yeah. lot. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. Yes. And to see that um, resurgence now... It never went away. It's been underground. It's coming out because mm-hmm. it somehow got permission to come out. Mm-hmm. And I think now we all have to be part of that. But as a white woman, I feel compelled to speak louder and to speak more, um, to speak strongly and boldly, but to do it in a respectful way to those who are not white, who are African-American, who are finding voices and voicing themselves in new and braver and more ways. So I think it's a matter of um, togetherness. And you're able to move white folks just like we are. I mean, we, we know that our audience is primarily white. So what is it that what is it that we can say that they can hear that they might not be able to hear from our black colleagues? So we're always trying to figure out how to leverage the access we have. Um, and yeah, use it that's well. an excellent point. Yeah. It's yeah. also interesting to think about our ages. So Ashley and I would have, we kind of grew up in the response to the backlash of the liberation movement. So we were born in the eighties 
Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm technically almost late thirties now, but you know, we were really shaped by the rise of the religious right and the rise of purity culture. It was almost like the Mm -hmm. next, the next generation of what you experienced just a little bit more insidious and kind of Mm -hmm. packaged as if that was empowering for us to abide by these rules with different packaging. So it's just interesting to think like, not that much change, Sue. For us, no. growing up, growing up in another small town of Georgia, I went to Cotillion, and it was. <laughs> I went to Cotillion too, so in Mississippi. <laughs> it's kind of kind of depressing, but um, yeah. But the work gets more. It's really having to examine it when it's not so explicit. Oh yes, and I went to Cotillion too. I mean, we had a lot to unpack. Oh my gosh, to get our real selves out there, right? <sighs> yes. Um, but to be able, I think, as a white Southern woman, girl at that mm-hmm. time, to be able to break free of the structures that um, formed us and shaped us is no small thing, especially in the South. Mm-hmm. I do think that sometimes that's a little harder, but I may be just off on that. I don't know. I don't know. I do think there's a certain conditioning in the South of being, you know, the good the good white Christian girl that doesn't rock the boat. I mean, that is an archetype in and of itself. And I know that that's not exclusive to the South, but it is particularly strong here. It feels like. <laughs> oh yeah. There, I, I never will forget. I think I mentioned this in dissident daughter. We had a cross stitch thing framed that they wanted to put in my bedroom, which said, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Right. That was a little saying that we had. And I just finally couldn't take it anymore. I mean, I just had to remove it from the wall sometime around 17 years old. But, you know, it's amazing how almost involuntarily you buy into it because it's the it's the culture that you live in. Mm-hmm. And um, the one of the reasons I wrote the Book of Longings is because um, well, it's actually a line in the book that I recognized. Anna says she was telling the story of Tabitha, her friend, who has this terrible thing happen to her. And she wanted to tell the story. And she said, you know, it was a very dangerous thing to do. But the the anger made her brave and the grief made her sure. Mm. And I feel like that. I mean, I wrote the book because the anger made me brave. Why silence women? Why tell us that we can only say nice things? I mean, the, the outrage is important for us to be able to voice what we need to voice. And so, you know, it was a kind of eye-opening one day. I realized, oh, I was writing about myself there. That's why I wrote this book. That's why I wrote Distant Daughter. That's why I write so much of what I do. And it's a gift to all of us of what we had were were books like yours when we were, yep. you had to write it, but we got to read it. Yep. Helped us nice. catch up a little bit more quickly, baby. Oh, that's so gratifying because both of you are young enough to be my daughters. And I just love that. <laughs> well, we love it too. We're very grateful. Yeah. So um, you talked a little bit about this, but maybe we could go a bit deeper around around women's spiritual community as this focus in the dance of the dissident daughter and in the book of longings. And it's just, it's why we started this podcast. We're always talking about this constant search that we have for real spiritual community. Mm -hmm. And we get 
glimmers of it. I mean, this is a big one, getting to talk mm-hmm. to you. But it doesn't ever feel like enough to be nourishing. We get little sips and we want the well. So like, who are your kindreds now? And what does spiritual community with them or with other people look like for you now? Yeah, um, that has persisted. That has not changed. I have always had a little nucleus of women, not many, three, four, uh, who are all in it together. And um, right now, we call ourselves the girlfriends, but we're really sisters. And we meet once a year. We're from four different states, um, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, and Georgia. And we all meet once a year for a week. And that week, we try to bless one another's largeness. I realize now in retrospect, that's what we were doing. And we've been meeting for, um, oh my goodness, since 2001. Wow. So 20 years. And I mean, we stay in touch throughout the year. But these weeks of the year are like um, big church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Revival. Yeah, you're <laughs> the, the tent meeting, yes, right? Yes. <laughs> And what we do is each woman has a day that is her day from morning to we go to bed. And she brings everything that she needs to talk about or do or ritualize or solve or envision or I mean, we and we aid and abet her in every way we possibly can to give her support to give her our best wisdom, our best thoughts about how to do it or what to do. And we have, every book I have written has been launched right there. Well, at least since 2001, all my novels. Mm. And um, for instance, I'll take my manuscripts. We'll put, we build an altar. We put, I put it there and they will lay their hands on it and bless it. And they will give me a charge. And they, so, you know, we've done everything at, from see one another through someone who had a divorce in our group to dealing with cancer to children that have gone astray to all kinds of things we see. So there's a component that is like church to this. It is to um, not just be friends and go shopping on a girlfriend vacation, Mm -hmm. but we each have this deep and profound 24 hours where all of this love and wisdom is poured on us to help us either heal or see or become more creative or whatever we want to do. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm tearing up for the second time. Just the image of that is so, that's what church is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, And I, you know, later, I'm sure that when Yalfa in the Book of Longings blesses the largeness of Anna. I had this in the back of my mind because that's what happens. We try to show the largeness to one another and mirror it and then expand it. And, you know, you don't have to live in the same state or country even now to do it. You can meet once a year, hopefully again, we missed last year, but we had a virtual girlfriend vacation and I must admit it wasn't the same Mm. because we didn't Mm -hmm. get to eat breakfast together and all of this, but we're hoping next fall it will, we'll have another one. 
I hope so too. Yes, I want one <laughs> yes. now, Ashley. Let's plan it. <laughs> I yeah, know. imagine if women all, all over the place had these, it would turn the world upside down, probably. <laughs> no, that's definitely um, my new goal. That is my new goal for spiritual community. Uh, yeah, and, and knowing that you have long distance friendships like Ashley and I do, we we yeah. have spent not even a week total together over the In course the of place. our friendship, but we talk mm-hmm. almost every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Sue, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, so we would, I guess we'll end it here. But thank you so much for talking to us. You have no idea how much this meant. And I cannot wait to share this conversation with our audience. I think they're really, they're in for a real treat. So we're grateful for this time with you. And to our listeners, the Book of Longings will be available in paperback on March 23rd. So go pick it up. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you too. Thank you so much. Such a gift. Thank you for giving us a nice drink of spiritual water today. We needed it. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 